You're listening to Your Woo Woo Best Friend, a no BS approach to wellness, spirituality, manifestation, and all things mystical. Hello, it's Andy. Welcome back to the show. This is Your Woo Woo Best Friend. Today's topic is one I have been contemplating talking about for quite some time. I will preface this episode with this. I am going to be talking about a miscarriage that I had in March of this year. So if that is something that is potentially triggering for you, I want you to be aware that that is going to be a part of the conversation today. As I sit here to record, I thought, okay, am I going to get through this intro without being in tears, without feeling sadness and emotion. And the reality is, of course, I'm feeling sadness. Of course, I'm feeling emotions because I'm talking about something that happened to me that was quite devastating. Ben and I first started trying to get pregnant at the end of last year, and we were able to get pregnant pretty quickly. And that was a really joyful experience. I'm over 40, and we thought it may take a while. And To be very honest, I had so little information about the fertility process before we started trying to get pregnant. I visited a fertility doctor for the first time in 2020 to have my ovarian reserve checked to see if it was possible for us to get pregnant, and things looked pretty good then. And I was just over 40 at that point in time. That was my very first experience and even having a conversation about ovarian reserve and what it even is, which we'll talk about in this episode. And then Ben and I made the decision to start trying for a baby at the end of last year. When we got pregnant, of course, we were absolutely thrilled, completely overjoyed. And I didn't know that much about miscarriages either, to be very honest, until it happened to me. And then I started to look for information. And I noticed that unless you dug pretty hard, it was a little bit hard to find women talking about how common and how frequent miscarriages, in fact, are. I thought about all of the women that I know that have had children or are in process of building families, and I just didn't see them having these conversations because it's been quite stigmatized, to be honest. I knew in my own family that there had been some miscarriages, but even in that case, the women in my family that had experienced those miscarriages didn't really talk about them. And so I looked and I saw one or two women I knew on Instagram who had gone through the experience of a miscarriage. I honestly saw more of the conversation happening on reality TV than I did anywhere else. And I'm not a big reality TV person. So I just noticed it here and there and thought, okay, I need to share this when it feels right for me. And now it does. It feels like I have the support, the guidance, the education, and the information because of my relationship with Kind Body and the doctor who is joining me today. She's my fertility doctor at Kind Body. So let me tell you a little bit about both Kind Body and Dr. Katharison. Dr. Katharison is board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility and obstetrics and gynecology. While she was in medical school, she was active in health disparities advocacy, and it earned her a national leadership award from the American Medical Association. She's been extensively published in many peer-reviewed scientific journals. 
She is absolutely devoted to helping couples to achieve their family building dreams. She's passionate about promoting fertility education awareness through her various social media platforms, and she makes it really fun. You can find her Instagram, her TikTok, her Facebook, and her YouTube all in our show notes. She was also awarded Rising Star Super Doc, Texas Top Doc, and Top Doctor by the Houstonian Magazine for several consecutive years before she moved here to Los Angeles. She has so many years of experience in all areas of infertility, including IVF and IUI, which we're going to talk about recurrent pregnancy loss, fertility preservation, egg freezing, all of these things we're going to talk about. And she is currently taking new patients at Kind Body in Los Angeles, where I am a patient. Let me tell you about Kind Body too. Kind Body offers best in class wellness and fertility treatment in modern tech-enabled clinics. They are available all around the country. You can go take a look at their website. You'll find there's offices in Los Angeles, of course. That's the office that I go to. There's also Atlanta and Austin and Detroit and Houston, and there's new offices coming all the time. I find it to be really wonderful in terms of the patient experience. There's a patient portal that makes communication so, so simple. And there's all sorts of education and resources provided through their social channels and their website. So let's get into the conversation. Thanks for joining me on this journey. There will be several additional episodes coming as I consider my own next steps. Ben and I are considering IVF. As of this moment, as I record, we've had moments where we are 1000% certain we're going to go for it and give it a try. And then we've had moments where we're like, not quite as sure. And the great thing is the folks at Kind Body have been so willing to be in conversation with us about what is right for, for us. And with that, I bring to you Dr. Anu Katharison. Hi, Dr. Katharison. Welcome to the show. Hi, Andy. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I am so happy to have you. And as I was saying to you right before we started recording, this is going to be just like talking to a patient because I am a patient. So I'm I'm excited to be able to have a conversation with you and then share it with our listeners and also get all of my own questions answered as I prepare to go through some additional fertility treatment and, and work with you. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. I'm excited for our conversation. So let's start with you and talk a little bit about your background and why you chose this specific path and the work that you do. So I actually went to medical school just, you know, kind of following, um, I always just tried to follow my passions. And so I had an interest in math and science. And so I thought medicine was a good fit for that. And the rest of my journey through training was always inspired by the same, just what I enjoyed studying and learning about and what I was passionate about. And um, that led me to OBGYN. I had a passion for women's health. I really loved um, delivering babies. And so it just seemed to be the perfect fit. And then when I was in residency, I similarly followed that same path where with infertility, um, I really loved, well, a couple things about it. One was 
um, just kind of having that math and science background and, and passion for that, I really loved infertility because it's very logical. Um, the hormone pathways and, and the endocrine, you know, system and how it works, it's very logical. And so I loved that aspect about it. But um, more importantly, I think what I loved is you really develop these genuine bonds with your patient and you really feel like you're going through the journey with them and so invested in that. And so it was those genuine relationships that I really, really loved. And so it just seemed to be the perfect fit. And so that's what led me to infertility. So, yeah, so, so much good stuff there. And I have to tell you as a patient of yours and as a patient of Kind Body, I I experienced fertility doctors before coming to Kind Body, and there's just a difference in the approach that you have and that all the folks at Kind Body have. And it's it's a little hard to describe. It is an office that is mostly women, but I don't know that that's all that it is. It's that it's there's a there's a different type of bond that I felt immediately in coming coming there versus going to the places that I went before, in which the logic and the science was explained to me in detail. And I had a really good understanding of what was possible, I think, or what was going on with my body. But when I came to Kind Body and when I met with you and when I met with the nurses there, the approach was just different. Can you, can you, do you, I mean, you must know that. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I, I would say the, one of the goals of Kind Body is, you know, going through the fertility journey can be just such a difficult journey. And so our goal is to make it as as much of a warm and comforting environment and experience as we can, because it's just so hard already. And so, you know, I think all of us from the nurses to the medical assistants to the physicians, um, you know, our goal is to just make it as as easy a process as we can. And, um, we just want to make fertility care accessible to patients. We know that it can be, you know, difficult for patients to access good quality, high quality fertility care. And so we're just trying to deliver high quality care and do it in a a warm and comforting way as much as we can. Yeah. And that's what it feels like. So, so from a patient's perspective, it's incredibly appreciated. Oh, well, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the most common reasons that folks come in to Kind Body that a couple might be struggling to conceive? Well, there are many, but the main factors that are involved in the fertility workup and that can be a cause for for infertility are, one is diminished ovarian reserve. And as a woman gets older, there is a decline in egg number and egg quality. And so that can be a factor. Um, Some women have uh, irregular periods and they're unable to ovulate. And so sometimes they need medication to help address that. Um, Sometimes women have um, uh, anatomic abnormalities when it comes to the uterus, like polyps or fibroids or um, blocked tubes that can be associated with endometriosis and conditions of that nature. And then male factor is another uh, component. So we always check a sperm analysis and look at the sperm concentration and numbers and motility and um, these type of things. And sometimes um, 
in the workup, everything comes back normal. And then we're left with a diagnosis of what's called unexplained infertility. And in those cases, we worry about while our testing is good and helpful in terms of looking at these other parameters like the ovaries, the tubes, the uterus, and the sperm, we wonder maybe sometimes um, there's still something underlying maybe on the level of the egg, the sperm, or the embryo that we're unable to test for. Um, and so that is what we speculate when we have the diagnosis of unexplained infertility, but those are some of the common ones. How long is someone typically trying to have a baby when they come into just to seek fertility treatment for the first time? It varies. So, uh, but what I would say is that, you know, sometimes patients have been trying for several years. Um, You know, sometimes patients may be, you know, very eager to conceive and and only trying for a few months and and ready to come in. But I think it's good to know, you know, when is it appropriate to see a fertility specialist? And so typically the the guidelines for that are if a woman is, um, so assuming that her cycles are regular and there's no red flag for infertility, then if she's under the age of 35, she could try for a year and then um, see a fertility specialist if they're unsuccessful after that amount of time. If a woman's between the ages of 35 and 39, we only want them to try for six months um, just because we worry about, again, that effective um, the decline in egg number inequality as we get older. Um, and then if the woman's over 40, we actually want them to come see us more, more closer to right away because of, we're worrying about that time factor. Um, so those are kind of the general guidelines. If a woman's, let's say though, her cycles are irregular, that may imply she's not ovulating. So it actually makes sense for her to co- go ahead and come see us and um, consider starting treatments to help with ovulation potentially. So um, just making sure you're aware of these caveats is important too. Um, but having said that, these are kind of the general guidelines. But if a couple is, you know, ready and eager, and if they've been unsuccessful after a few months, and they just kind of want to see where things are and come see us, that's okay too. That's really helpful. And what I love about the way that you've explained this is it's it, again, it's like that personal touch of do what feels right for you. If you feel like you're ready, come on in and see us. There's no really right or wrong around that. And if you feel like as you're getting older, that this is something that is important to you, come on, let's go. Let's get in and see and see what we can do. Yeah, exactly. It's just not a one-stop, you know, fits all kind of thing. And it has to be a little bit of what's right for that patient and that couple. For sure. In my experience, Ben and I started trying to conceive at, I'm, I was, I've just had a birthday, so I was 44 and we started the process and we got pregnant pretty quickly. We got pregnant in two months or three months, I think it was. Yeah. We started trying to conceive in November of last year and got pregnant in January. And then I had a miscarriage at seven weeks. And that for me was the, that was the trigger. I was like, okay we've attempted this and we we know we can get pregnant. We did get pregnant. We got pregnant quickly. However, there could be other things going on here clearly because we just had a miscarriage. And for me, that, that was the moment of let's, let's go and get the support that we, that we potentially need in order to get to the bottom of what's going on. What are some of the reasons? Well, first, let me ask you this. What happens in a miscarriage? So 
the the most common cause of a miscarriage is a genetic abnormality of of the offspring of the baby and so a lot of the time patients may think like what did they do and you know what what was wrong with them that a miscarriage resulted and that's not actually you know always the case and more commonly it's related to the genetics of the baby and it's it's kind of nature's way for selecting against genetically abnormal pregnancies and um so they're very common and a lot of the time miscarriages can happen so early that patients that may not be even um aware of them but ultimately what happens is eventually the patient will have pain and bleeding and and pass the um pregnancy on their own typically yeah, in my case, I my my intuition told me something was not right. I, it started to I started to have that cramping and pain on a Sunday, and so I was like, mm, "This doesn't feel great." We actually had plans that day with some friends, and that morning I was just like, mm, "This doesn't feel right. Something feels feels not so great." My my mother in law is a nurse, and so I called her and t- talked her you know talked to her about what was going on with me and. She was keeping me in good spirits, I think probably very concerned, but also knowing that it could be a lot of things. So she was like, just hang tight until you can get into the doctor tomorrow, unless you're feeling like you need to go in and get, you know, get seen right now, which I didn't feel that way yet. By Monday morning, I definitely knew something was wrong. I went into my GP and my GP gave me another pregnancy test. I wasn't I wasn't even bleeding yet. So she was like, I, she even was a little bit like, I'm not so sure, Andy, this may just be some cramping you're having. Let's hang tight. Um, and I, I just wasn't, I just wasn't feeling good. I just kind of knew. And so she suggested because of that, that I go ahead and go into my OB that afternoon. I got to my OB's off, office and not that there's ever a great way for a miscarriage to go down, but I was at my OB's off office when I started bleeding. And so my OB was able to tell me exactly what was about to happen and get me prepared. Ben was with me. So he talked us through, okay, this is what you're about to go through. This is, this is what's coming. And I remember sitting in the office and saying to the nurse before I was, before we did the ultrasound, before we were clear that that's what was about to happen. I said to the nurse, is this normal? And she said, it's not normal, but it's very common. And that was like my realization that this happens a lot and i didn't even realize how common it actually is and that that to me was a moment of awareness of just how much we don't talk about miscarriages and how for me it was going to be important that i did talk about it that i did share it because i want other women to have the information that i didn't have Absolutely. I think, you know, and I think times are changing and it's similar with infertility. A lot of people didn't talk about it, um, but it is very common and, you know, people struggle with both of these things very commonly. And um, I think, you know, the great thing about talking about them is that it really um, helps with encouraging other people to talk about it and then realizing we're all in the same boat and we have support, you know, and we have this community and we don't even realize it. Um, so I think the more we talk about it, I mean, and going through these things is so hard. So I think it's, it's just so important that to keep up that conversation because the more we talk about it, the more support that we find and, and it just, you know, the more support we need to, to get through this and it just helps with, um, with getting through both of these things. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is why I'm so grateful that we're doing this today. And then I have your expertise to help us to get more information and, and clarity on, on the process. Let's talk about the ovarian reserve. Explain to all of us listening, myself included, what is the ovarian reserve and how do we check for that? So ovarian reserve are parameters that we look at to get a general gauge of a woman's egg number. They don't tell us about egg quality and egg quality is not something that we can directly test for. Um, But having said that, they help us at least with getting kind of a gauge of egg number. Um, Studies will also show that it helps with um, gauging how a woman will respond to treatment. So therefore it's helpful um, for us when we are trying to dose patients with treatments. And so that's kind of the main um, ways we use them. And so there are three main things that we can check when we're looking at ovarian reserve. One is AMH, which stands for anti-mullerian hormone. And that is taken through a blood test. And it basically is produced by the cells that line the follicle called granulosa cells. And so that's how it kind of correlates to egg number. So kind of the more the follicles that are present, the more the AMH and the better the ovarian reserve. Um, Another test that we look at is done with a transvaginal ultrasound, and that's to look at antral follicle count. And it's basically getting a, when we do an ultrasound, we look at the ovaries, we're able to see these little black circles, and those are the follicles. Each black circle theoretically contains a immature egg. And so when we look at that follicle count, that's also kind of giving us a gauge of the remaining um, egg number and what is in that patient's reserve. And then the last thing we look at is um, a day three, day two to three FSH and estradiol level. And what that's doing is when we check it at, um, so it needs to be, that one is cycle day specific. It needs to be done around cycle day two to three versus the other two, which can be technically um, done anytime in the cycle. Um, But what it's doing is telling us at the beginning of the cycle, how hard is the brain working to stimulate the ovary to produce a follicle that month? And so we want the FSH to not be high because the FSH stands for follicle stimulating hormone, and that's produced by the brain, and then it will travel through the bloodstream to the ovary to stimulate the ovary to grow a follicle that month, which will produce estrogen. So we want the FSH to be low, indicating that the brain is not working too hard to get that response from the ovary. Mm. And then we also want the estradiol level to be low at the beginning of the cycle because we don't want the follicle to have already started growing by that time at cycle day two to three. Um, Because if the follicle has started growing, then the estrogen may be a little bit elevated. And these, um, and the, when a follicle grows early, it just correlates to a woman's um, decline in ovarian reserve. So ideally we want to see FSH under 10 and estradiol under 60 to 80 around that cycle day two to three. Okay. And then let's talk about the paths to conception. What are some of the most common fertility treatments available? So generally there's three options. Um, So one is medication like Clomid or Letrozole with timed intercourse. Um, A second option is Clomid or Letrozole with IUI, which stands for intrauterine insemination. And then the third option is IVF, um, which stands for in vitro fertilization. And all of these options are um, 
going to be different levels of evasiveness, kind of going from lesser to, to greater from timed intercourse being the um, least aggressive to IVF being kind of the most aggressive and invasive, but also um, that will correlate with success rate. So the timed intercourse success rate being lower compared to, um, to IVF. Tell me about the factors of success for both IUI and IVF. So um, both of these, it's the kind of the main um, prognostic factor with treatment options, generally speaking, is going to be the woman's age and her ovarian reserve. And um, that can have a very strong impact on success rates. Um, and then after, after that, like in terms of IUI, other things that can be a factor. So for a woman to also be a candidate for IUI, we need to also make sure her tube, at least one tube is open mm -hmm. and that the sperm numbers are sufficient. And typically we want a total modal count of above 10 million in order for that patient to be a candidate for IUI. So assuming those things are the case, um, but yes, age is going to be um, one of the main prognosis factors, ovarian reserve. And then the patient's underlying fertility diagnosis can also be um, can also contribute to the success rate. So for example, with unexplained infertility, we actually worry about that diagnosis a little bit more and success rates can be a little lower with that diagnosis compared to, um, you know, if there's a polyp there and we remove it and something that we can like... Um, readily identify and, and treat. So um, if there's underlying um, male factor, you know, we worry about that contribution to the sperm and potentially decreasing success rates from that end. Um, so it just kind of depends on the underlying fertility diagnosis. When it comes to factors contributing to IVF, so again, it's going to be the age, the ovarian reserve. Other things that can impact it are going to be the egg quality and sperm quality, as we mentioned, which we can't directly test for, as I mentioned earlier. But once the egg and sperm come together, then we have an embryo. And we are able to somewhat assess the quality of the embryo by doing genetic testing. Um, the genetic testing is about 96% accurate. So it's very accurate, but there is a small error rate there. But having said that, it's um, a very accurate test that helps with um, helps with uh, knowing, okay, the embryo quality is okay. Then there's the uterus. Um, the uterus, if there's polyps, fibroids, adhesions, all of these things can impact success rate. And sometimes we see normal uterine cavities and sometimes we have patients that are still having difficulty conceiving and we wonder in those patients, is there some underlying endometrial receptivity issue that we're not easily able to identify that might still be underlying in that patient. So the uterus is a factor. Um, tubes can be a factor if the patient has a hydrosalpinx, which is a dilated tube that contains fluid. That fluid can backtrack into the uterus and decrease pregnancy rates. So we want to make sure the patient's tubes that, you know, that there's no hydrosalpinx present. Um, and then um, the transfer itself, when it comes to IVF, if the transfer is difficult, that can also impact success rates. So um, there's kind of different factors involved with different treatments um, that can contribute to the success rates for both. Sure. A lot of things to, a lot of things to consider and a lot of ways it could go and lots of things that could impact, impact the success. When someone comes in for IUI, what what exactly happens? What does it involve? So 
Um, first, what will happen, the patient will call with their period that will kind of initiate the cycle and we will bring them in around cycle day two to four, somewhere at the beginning of their cycle. And so at the fertility clinic, we will do a little bit more than let's say an OBGYN. We'll do a lot more ultrasound and blood work because we just want to pinpoint things better. So um, we will bring them in for a baseline ultrasound and blood work, just make sure everything looks good to start. And then we will start them either on Clomid or Letrozole for example. Sometimes we'll do injectable medication as well. The decision for the type of medicine we use is going to be dependent on the patient's infertility diagnosis and age and ovarian reserve. Um, so we uh, will start the medications once we're cleared from that first ultrasound. And then we bring them back in for another ultrasound, typically around cycle day 10 to 12. And we look at how many follicles have responded. So our goal is two, two to three follicles. We're trying to increase the number of eggs that are present there in hopes that one of those eggs, just to, statistically speaking, will hopefully meet one of the sperm. Um, but we don't also want to go too high in egg number because there's a risk of multiples. So kind of our sweet spot is two to three follicles. So we do an ultrasound, assess where the follicles are in terms of growth and how many are there. And then if everything looks appropriate, the patient will, um, it just depends on what the ultrasound findings are. Sometimes we'll need to do another ultrasound, but let's say the follicles are ready then and the appropriate size, then we will have the patient take a trigger medication, which is another injection that they'll do at home. And then that will time when ovulation occurs. And so then we plan the IUI about 35 to 36 hours after the trigger approximately. So the patient will come in on the day of the IUI, the patient and partner, um, and so we will get a sperm specimen, we'll clean and concentrate the sperm, and then we put it in a little syringe that's attached to a catheter. And we advance that catheter to the top of the uterus with the goal being to try and get the sperm as close as we possibly can to the eggs. Um, so then we'll inject the sperm at the top of the uterus. And then after that, we no longer have control. It's up to the egg and sperm to meet on their own and a pregnancy to implant on its own. So we just wait for a pregnancy test about two weeks later. In the process, you're basically setting up the sperm and the egg to be as close to each other and ready to go as possible. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. And then take me through the experience of IVF. It's something that Ben and I have been in consideration of, and we are planning potentially to begin that process after and then after my next cycle. So it's coming up pretty quickly. So take me through that experience. So with IVF, there are different protocols. So every protocol is a little bit different. So, um, but typically it starts with um, some sort of attempt to try and synchronize the follicles. And so depending on the patient, that could be birth control pills or it could be estrogen. And the point of either one of those is, again, to help synchronize the follicles. Ideally, we want them to grow together at the same pace. So we maximize the number of mature eggs that we get. After that phase, then it is the injections. And the injections last anywhere from eight to 12 days. It just depends on the woman and her response. Two of the injections are typically to help stimulate the ovaries to grow as many eggs as we possibly can. So this is in contrast to the IUI where we're only trying to grow two to three. In IVF, we're trying to grow as many as we can um, because we're gonna actually surgically remove the eggs later on in the process. Um, and so two injections are to stimulate the ovaries. And then we start a third injection 
at some point, depending on the protocol, again, sometimes early in the um, injections, but sometimes later on. And that third injection is to prevent ovulation because we don't want the woman to ovulate during this process. And so then we'll monitor the patient during the time frame that they're on the injections with blood work and ultrasound. It's a little bit more frequent compared to the IUI. It's every two to three days, a total of usually four to five visits. We try and make them in and out in the morning so we don't interfere with the patient's work and um, that type of thing. And we try and make the visits in and out. And then we'll follow up the patient later on in the afternoon with the results and the next steps from there in terms of if we're going to adjust any dosages of the medication, and also when we're going to plan to see them back. And then once the follicles reach the right size, we'll tell the patient to trigger ovulation, and then we'll plan the egg retrieval 35 to 36 hours after the trigger. And so the egg retrieval is a minor surgical procedure that we do to remove the eggs. It's done with anesthesia, so the patient will be in a deep sleep. They won't feel it as we're doing it. We basically do this under ultrasound guidance and we advance a needle over the ultrasound probe. The needle will be just resting above the probe until we get to the back of the vaginal wall. And then at that point, it'll go through the wall and into the ovary. And we advance the needle into each individual follicle and step on a pedal that activates a vacuum suction. So we're essentially um, suctioning the fluid and the eggs out of each follicle. And then that'll travel through a tubing and then into a test tube. And then we hand the test tube off to the embryologist. And so then the embryologist will take over from there. They will look under a microscope at the fluid and identify the eggs. And then later on that day, they will inject the sperm into the mature eggs. And then the following day, we will check, or the embryologist will check for fertilization. And then we allow the embryos to grow in the lab for a period of five to seven days until it becomes what's called a blastocyst, where the cells divide into um, the structure. And there's a kind of concentrated cell structure in the embryo called the inner cell mass, which is the future baby. And then there's cells on the outside, which are called the trophectoderm, and that is the future placenta. So once it makes it to that stage, we have the option to genetically test the embryo or take a sampling of a few of the cells that would become the future placenta, get the genetic makeup of those cells, and extrapolate what the genetic makeup of the embryo is. So with this test, we get the chromosome number. There's 46 chromosomes, so it's a very thorough test. And we also get the sex of the embryo, which the patient can choose to know or not know, depending on their preference. Um, and doing this testing helps us to increase our success rate as well as decrease miscarriage rate. And so it's a really helpful um, technology to, to help with success rates with IVF. Okay. I have a couple of questions asking for myself and anyone who's listening, who's considering something like IVF. The process of the at-home injections, how many injections is someone typically doing at home? That's definitely something I've heard friends say is, you know, it sounds a little scary. I'm going to have to be giving myself shots at home. What is that like? So it's about two to three injections per day for... Um, for about eight to 12 days. And um, so again, it's a little bit protocol dependent. Um, one protocol called the antagonist protocol, the first about five to six days, you're doing two injections a day. And then the last five to six days, you're doing um, three injections per day. Um, so it's kind of generally speaking. So it is a, it is a reasonable number of injections. Um, but what I would say, actually, my sisters both um, froze their eggs. And so I kind of have their experience when they went through this. And um, one of them told me the first 
first couple days was a little bit of a learning curve and, you know, the injections kind of stung a little bit, but after the first two days, it was like, she was totally used to it. And she told me actually the injections didn't hurt after that. So I think you're doing a good number of them that after a while you get used to it and it becomes not so bad. Um, we do do injection teachings, um, with the nurses. And so, um, you'll have that, um, experience too. So you're kind of getting um, a little education before you start the injections, as well as there are a lot of video resources. So I always tell patients, make sure you watch one of your the videos that you're about to start the injections with so you can get a quick refresher right before you do the injections. Um, so all of these things are, are resources that can help with the injections. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. Very helpful to know that there's a training and there's some guidance on how you, how you do this at home. That's, I think, important for, for anyone who maybe is a little bit needle, needle shy, doesn't really, you know, love the idea of shots. Yeah. And one additional thing I would add to is the needles are, um, during the stimulation, they're half inch needles. They're very thin. So, um, and they go into that kind of fatty tissue under your belly button. That's where you'll inject them, but they're, um, you know, very small needles. So that makes it, you know, easier, um, in terms of the injection. Yeah. A little less scary. For sure. Yeah. Okay. And then I have another question about the genetic testing process before implantation. So you mentioned that this process lessens the possibility of miscarriage. And and why is that? Because one of the most common reasons for miscarriage is a genetic abnormality of the offspring. And so by doing the testing, we're able to um, narrow down which embryo is genetically normal and then potentially transfer that embryo in. So because we're able to um, narrow down which one is is normal, that helps to decrease that, that rate of miscarriage. Got it. Very helpful. Okay. So then what's the difference in... IVF and FET. Yeah, so they're both kind of different stages to the overall um, treatment option of IVF. So the first, um, I kind of describe it in two steps. So the first step is the IVF part where we're focusing on creation of the embryo. And so that's um, kind of the process I just described, getting up to the genetic testing. So once we get to that point where we do the genetic test, um, the biopsy, the results typically take two to three weeks to get the results. And so we'll meet with the patient once we have those results and then see if their family building goals were met with that cycle. And assuming that's the case, then we're ready to move on to step two, which would be the FET or frozen embryo transfer cycle. And so the focus there is now on preparing the uterus for a transfer and putting the embryo back in. And so there are a couple of things we want to make sure before we proceed for the um, frozen embryo transfer cycle. So one is, as I mentioned, making sure their patient's family building goals are met, because if they weren't, sometimes we'll consider another IVF cycle, um, because that's the more kind of time-sensitive aspect to this is the creation of the embryo. So we want to make sure that we're doing our best to meet that goal. And then assuming that's the case, the next thing is we want to do an evaluation of the uterine cavity, make sure that it looks normal, no polyps, fibroids, adhesions. So we do that typically with a saline ultrasound or sometimes a hysteroscopy prior to the um, 
FET cycle. So we want to make sure that's done and the uterus is ready. And then the last thing is a mock transfer. So that's just a practice run at putting the embryo back in where we just advance the catheter in and out. We just want to make sure that's a nice and smooth process because we don't want to run into a surprise on the real day when we put the embryo back in that it's difficult to get the catheter in. So assuming all these things are done, um, then we're ready to move forward with the frozen embryo transfer um, cycle. And there's a couple different protocols. One's called a programmed or controlled frozen embryo transfer protocol. Another is a um, natural cycle or stimulated frozen embryo transfer protocol. And um, so I always go over both options with the patient, and then we decide on which protocol we're going to proceed with. The patient will take the medication to prepare for the um, process, and then we put the embryo back in at the right time. Um, so that's generally how the, the frozen embryo transfer process um, goes. Okay. What do you find with your patients is the, what's, how does it feel emotionally? How, how, are, how are folks typically processing this experience as they're going through it. And of course, there's obviously successes and then there's there's failures too. So what do you see in terms of the general, it's hard to say general because everybody's emotional process is different, but what do you, what do you notice and what are some things to do to take good care of your emotional self in preparation for this sort of experience? Yeah. It's, um, I would say that it's not an easy journey. It's, it is an emotional roller coaster. Um, the highs are, are really high, you know, when we achieve success and it's amazing. And then the lows are really, really low and devastating when we're, we're, um, unable to achieve success. And, um, so I, even though what I'm, you know, I'm on this roller coaster with patients, I know that what I'm experiencing is, is, you know, nothing close to what they're experiencing as they're going through this journey, but I do feel like I'm, I'm on it with them and it can be really, it can be so challenging and so hard. Um, there are just so many uncertainties with this process and there's a lot of waiting and anticipation and, and it can just kind of take an emotional toll. Um, so what I try and, um, and give patients and would recommend for patients is just try and um, be as proactive as you can to educate yourself as much as you can on the process. I think that helps with um, setting expectations and helping with that anticipation and um, and also being aware it is a bit of a numbers game. There is a decline in numbers as we go through this process. And so um, I try and go through that with patients as well. And it's a bit of a spectrum in terms of the end outcome. There's going to be best case scenarios are going to be worst case scenarios. And it's just one of those things we won't know what will happen until we go through. So I just want patients to be kind of prepared for both the best case and worst case scenarios so that at least they're aware and hopefully less surprised that way. And then after that, just moving forward, knowing, you know, that um, as optimistic as we can, both of us knowing that, you know, I'm doing our very best and the clinic is doing our very best to try and maximize, um, the best outcomes for patients. And um, so I think that's helpful just in terms of um, preparation. Um, and uh, additionally, you know, I think making sure you lean on the um, resources that you have for emotional support. And that is, that can be many different resources. So one, the physician, the nurses, your clinic, you know, we're there to support you and help you go through this journey with you. Um, your partner, significant other, family, uh, family members. Um, and then, you know, there's 
an infertility um, community, you know, if you have friends that have gone through this journey and, you know, can be there to support you and support groups. So there's many different um, outlets and resources. So I definitely would tell patients to, to lean in on these, these type of things as well. That's very helpful and important. I think the emotional the emotional piece is something that sometimes we don't speak so much about how something may make us feel when we're going through any sort of medical experience, but something as, you know, as important as potential family building and what that potential outcome could look like. Really considering how you're going to feel and taking good care of self is so important. And Definitely something that on this show we talk a lot about is how we feel and making sure we're validating our feelings and taking good care of our feelings. So thank you for that. What are some things we can do for any healthy pregnancy in terms of um, supplements, diet, wellness practices? For for me personally, I've been going through, um, I've been going to acupuncture. I've been taking some supplements that you recommended for me. I've been really mindful of eating foods that are really fertility friendly. Can you talk us through some of those, those things that we could do? Yeah. So typically we would recommend a Mediterranean diet, lots of fruits and vegetables, healthy fats like avocado, olive oil, poultry, fish, this type of thing, exercise, just trying to do what you can to stay healthy. I usually say three to four times a week of good cardio and intermittent weights. Um, but keeping in mind also that when we're doing the actual treatments when it comes to IVF and injections, we actually don't want you to exercise during that time, but leading up in preparation, we want you to have that healthy lifestyle mindset and trying to achieve and maintain a healthy BMI. Um, when it comes to supplements, we'll always recommend a prenatal vitamin. Um, in addition, depending on the woman's age and ovarian reserve, sometimes we'll recommend two additional supplements. So um, if I have that concern for ovarian reserve, I usually would recommend CoQ10 and DHEA. Both of these are not going to dramatically change ovarian reserve, but they can help a little bit. So if we're just trying to do everything that we can, um, I would recommend those two. In addition, during the stimulation, sometimes we'll do an injection called Omnitrope and also to help with egg quality. Again, not going to make dramatic differences, but it can help a little bit. So those are the, the things that we do um, from the um, quality perspective. And the last thing is um, stress management. I know, um, you know, stress can be a component to this. And as much as it's possible, I know it's easier said than done. I tell patients, I want you to envision taking the stress off of your shoulders and put it on mine because I will be stressing and microanalyzing for you. So, you know, someone will be doing that. So I'd rather you put that on me and I'd rather patients try and indulge in the things that bring them joy and self-care and help take their mind off the process, whatever outlets work for them. And so that can be for some patients, acupuncture or a meditation or walks in the evening, you know, whatever kind of helps put that patient in a good headspace, I would recommend. Got it. Absolutely. Such, such important stuff to just be well all the time. And especially at a time like this one, I want to also ask you about egg freezing. We haven't talked about that yet. How does somebody know when it might be the right time for them to freeze eggs? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I would say that 
a patient really, again, can come in anytime to assess ovarian reserve and just see where things are. I think it's it's always good to kind of at least know where things are and be empowered with that information. Um, but generally speaking, we we would say around the early 30s is a good time to consider it. Um, in our late 20s, you know, there's a chance that it's still, you know, a woman's young with good number of eggs and um, good quality eggs, but there's a chance that she may not end up needing to use them versus um, when we get past our early 30s, let's say, you know, in our late 30s onto um, our early 40s, then the egg number decline and a quality decline become more of an issue. And so in that case, you know, we worry that the patient may need to do more cycles to get more eggs um, potentially to, to achieve their goals um, because there is going to be a decline in egg number and quality and success rates in, in achieving live birth as we get older. So it's going to require more eggs later on in life to achieve a patient's goal potentially. So generally we'll say like in our early 30s. But having said that, we see a various age range in patients that present interested in egg freezing from their late 20s to their early 40s. And um, I would still, you know, review with all of the patients their ovarian reserve parameters. And my goal is to try and help patients become well-informed with what their, um, what their, uh, realistic expectations are would be with going through an egg freezing cycle in terms of egg number and what that correlates to in terms of live birth rate, and then figuring out if that feels like the right option for them. So there's not necessarily, you know, um, an age that will say you can't, you know, do it necessarily if they're in their late 20s, early 40s, but we want them to be well informed of what success rates look like and then figure out if that, you know, is the right decision for them. What's the success rate difference when using fresh eggs versus frozen eggs? So um, the success rate is going to be largely dependent, again, on the woman's age at the time she froze their eggs. But assuming that the woman's, let's say, young and um, let's say like donating her eggs, there is not a significant difference between um, success rates in fresh eggs versus frozen eggs. Um, but it's going to be largely dependent on the woman's age at the time she froze her eggs. So the older the woman is when she froze her eggs, you know, that's going to have the impact on success rates. Okay. And how many, how many eggs or cycles does someone need to go to go through typically? Is there a, a number that someone would want to potentially keep in mind for their own future? Yeah. For their own future potential babies? Yeah. So that's, um, that's also a challenging question to answer just because it depends on several factors. So one being um, how many kids that patient's trying to set as their, their target goal in terms of you know, how many eggs are freezing in hopes that that'll increase the chances of having X number of children, whether it's one or two or however many that is. So that will change the number of eggs we're trying to set as our goal. Um, the second is how many eggs that patient can reasonably obtain from one cycle. Um, and then the third is the age of the woman at the time that she freezes her eggs. So all these things are going to vary, you know, depending on that, the woman and, and um, that particular woman and her individual circumstance. But a general rule of thumb, I would say, is our goal is to get as close to 15, 10 to 15 eggs, I would say, per pregnancy attempt. But having said that, if the woman is older, you know, that number is going to change. So, um, but I would encourage patients to 
have a conversation with their doctor so they can get a better, more specific understanding of what that percentage is for, um, and egg numbers to set as their target, you know, based on their age and ovarian reserve and follicle count at the time that they're freezing their eggs. Okay. All right. Got it. Thank you. Can you share any final words of encouragement for women experiencing infertility or considering fertility treatment? I would say, so some of the things that we mentioned before, which is um, just trying to be as proactive as you can with gathering as much information and educating yourself as much as you can on the process. So help, so hopefully that will help with um, kind of decreasing the stress and anticipation as you're going through this. Um, being aware kind of of the full spectrum of possibilities, the best case and worst case scenarios. Um, and then I often tell patients, you know, I want them to kind of as much as hard as it is to kind of let go of that control of, of things because we want to control kind of everything in life. With this, it's it's hard to, to let go of that control because there is only so much control that we have. But I recommend patients trying to give in to the process, you know, because um, there isn't a guarantee and just trying to be as optimistic as we can, you know, knowing that we're doing our very best to get the best outcome for them, um, but to try and give in to that as much as possible. And then um, lastly, just leaning in on your support. You know, there's so many resources available to you between the clinic and hopefully partner, friends, family members, infertility support groups, all of these type of resources. So don't go through this alone. You're not alone and try and lean in on these support systems as much as you can. Thank you so much. So such good words and so much good information. Dr. Katherson, I am so grateful and looking forward to seeing you in the office soon. If someone's interested in following you to learn more about infertility and the possibilities available to them, where can they find where can they find you? Um, well, I am on um, the usual social media platforms on Instagram, on TikTok, actually on YouTube. My handle for everything is just my name, a new Catherison MD. And um, if you go to the link in the bio on any of those platforms, it'll sh- it'll lead you to all the different social media platforms that I'm on. So. I do try and um, answer a lot of common questions I get about fertility there and trying to make social media as much as I can a a resource of fertility information for patients. So um, I hope patients find it helpful. Awesome. And if someone's interested in checking out Kind Body, where should they go to get more information about Kind Body? Yeah, you can just go to kindbody.com and um, resources should be there um, at that website to set up an appointment. And, um, and if you, if patients need anything else in addition. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. It's been so insightful and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Andy, so much. It was such a lovely time to talk to you about these things. I hope it was helpful. Absolutely. I'll see you soon. Bye. Take care. I'll close this episode with gratitude to Dr. Katherson and the entire team at Kind Body for their support of both me and my journey and for being willing to share this knowledge and information with each of you, our dear listeners of this show. I hope it's inspired you to find your own path 
infertility, if it is something you're considering to get educated, to explore your own well-being. I wish I had had this information so many years ago, and I'm so glad that I can be someone to bring it forward now. These conversations are really important. It is so important that we know our own bodies and what they are capable of and what is possible for us. There's so much talk about women's bodies in the media. That is a whole nother conversation I could have. But what I want for each of us is to be aware, be in charge, be empowered. If this episode has resonated with you, please send me a note, send me a DM. Let's chat about it. Share it with a friend. Post it on social. You can tag us at your woo woo BFF. I will see you again next week, every Thursday. We're here with more topics to inspire your well-being journey and to create a more radiant life for each of us. Sending much love. See you soon. Thank you.